welcome to Rising. We inadvertently color coordinated today, which is always a good sign uh, that we have a great show ahead of us. Indeed, Robbie. We'll discuss Arizona Senate candidate Blake Masters' affirmative action regime comments about diversity at the Fed with friends of the show, Will Jawando and Denise Long, and Jordan Charrington discusses the water crisis hitting residents of Jackson, Mississippi. Plus, Aaron Mate is back with some of his latest reporting on Ukraine. You won't want to miss that. But first, Biden previewed his Safer America plan yesterday in Pennsylvania and vowed further police funding. Let's watch. When it comes to public safety in this nation, the answer is not defund the police. It's fund the police. Fund the police. And give them... We expect them to do everything. We expect them to be... To protect us, to be psychologists, and to be sociologists. I mean, we expect you to do everything. For some context, the American Rescue Plan signed into law last year sent $350 billion to local governments for, for their police budgets, in contrast to former President Trump, who cut police budgets by $400 billion for state and local law enforcement. So here's the rub. It seems like Joe Biden is funding the police harder than anyone could ever fund them, in contrast to recent Republican leadership. But he's still getting pegged with this association with the defund the police movement. What's yeah. going on? It was never persuasive when Republicans tried to paint Joe Biden as like part of the like defund the police is I think not a good tactical slogan for anyone, but it's not one at all that Joe Biden embraced. And more more importantly than what slogan he uses, his literal actions contradicted. He does want to fund the police. He is a pro policing. Uh, Democrat, I, I was listening to these remarks uh, yesterday, thinking, thinking how much they would be <laughs> triggering you, and uh, it's exactly the opposite of, of what you feel. Democrats should be advising. I mean, I, I see it. I think this is popular, um, this kind of framing of police issues this way, and uh, I, I know that many people in their communities, even communities that have been affected by overly aggressive policing, also feel like safety and crime and violence are an issue and are not necessarily so against the police the way it's sometimes portrayed. You know, all that said, I've made my you know, feelings clear on the show numerous times. I am also skeptical, as you are, that increasing funding for yeah, police and does... The skepticism is rooted in reality yeah. and statistics. So... You know, you're right. The, the the slogan, if you will, of defund the police was a slogan that came out of the activist community, and I think is well suited for the activist community. However, when you poll people on whether or not they support transferring funds toward the very social services that Biden points out in his remarks, right? He's like, we expect police to be social workers and EMTs and these kinds of things. Well, that is fundamentally the problem, that we expect all these things of police, and they're not trained to actually do that job. They're trained to have guns and shoot, and not every situation demands that. A very small fraction of uh, uh, you know, causes for which police are called have to do with violent crime and the kinds of things we typically associate with police behavior. So why not, people say, shift funds toward the kind of training in individuals that can service the communities that, that need exactly the kind of services mm -hmm. you described? And by giving the police more funding, sometimes that means giving them tanks, giving them right. SWAT equipment, things they use not for greater public safety, but, but, for, but for theft. And then meanwhile, we get Uvalde. Right, right, we get Uvalde. Then when a situation that calls for that, which they've been prepared for and trained for, 
they disappoint us. They let us down. And right. meanwhile, so many Americans dealing with uh, civil asset forfeiture, Correct. the practice, you know, police investigating, going into your home, they take your stuff, they take your car. If they find cash, they take it. And then the standard for getting, you have to prove to them, even if you're never convicted of a crime, you can't get this stuff back. So I, I absolutely understand why a lot of Americans feel harassed by the police. I mean, it, it's a, I think it's an issue of, I think it's often wrongly framed by the left, or not wrongly, but tactically unsound as a predominantly a race issue. When it, it should be, to my mind, it's a government it's a government accountability issue. It they is, work for us. We fund. We we are forced to fund. You don't have an option for whether you fund the police. It's not like hiring a security guard or something. If you don't like whether you fire, get a new security guard. We are forced to give them money, and uh, and they should. So there should be more accountability for them. And there's less. There's more protection for bad behavior from qualified immunity from their unionized. Uh, the, the, the way that these, I think even people on the left who are generally supportive of unions see how in this specific employee sector, union incentives have been very, very perverse. Yeah, I think that's right. And so now Joe Biden is out here, I think, making a case that appeals to very few people who actually stand any chance of voting for him or supporting him politically. And it's really unclear who he thinks this is for. Well, I think it's for, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I think it is for... Um, I don't know, moderately, <laughs> moderate people, which are which are more of the country than you know can come through in in the talk pundit sphere where everybody has you know pretty intense opinions. Who, who is the person who's on the fence about voting for Joe Biden? But the fact that he is doubling down on being uh, um, pro police funding when he has a long career. For someone who's, who's wavering, someone who's me. wavering on voting for Democrats because they're concerned about crime. And then looks at Republicans and goes, oh, but I remember I don't like, I find Republicans very weird, is reassured when, when Joe Biden says something like this. I mean, maybe not, but I, I assume that's his strategy and he has some competent people at least running his campaign. Are or, you so sure about well, that? Well, I don't know. You tell me You tell 20, me that's not the case. But You know, I, I think that the people he's who the champ. are he the won. kinds of centrists who like this kind of messaging are going to vote for Joe Biden no matter what. And I think that 20 million people were mm. in the street uh, the summer that he was elected, calling for the opposite of what he's uh, elevating right now in, in those kinds of remarks. And he could say less or give more targeted responses to specific conservative audiences that he wants to address. But coming on the national stage and reminding so many people why they only voted for him begrudgingly because they didn't like Trump is a bad idea, especially if we're not confident that he's actually going to go up against Trump again and that fear-mongering doesn't land in quite the same way. I mean, the, the party, frankly, the party of skepticism of law enforcement in some weird ways, in some very broad ways right now, is the Republican yeah, Party. abolish the FBI. <laughs> abolish the FBI. I think uh, Ted Cruz was caught saying it. I think we have actually footage of, uh, of Biden talking about, can we play that next before we talk about the assault uh, uh, weapon um, Part. Oh, it's Here we go. sickening to see the new attacks on the FBI threatening the life of law enforcement agents and their families for simply carrying out the law and doing their job. Look, I want to say this as clear as I can. There's no place in this country, no place for endangering the lives of law enforcement. No place. None, never, period. I'm opposed to defunding the police. I'm also opposed to defunding the FBI. 
It's going to be daggers into <laughs> your heart, you Brianna. It's so funny. During uh, all of the student debt discourse last week, the response from the White House was so similar to my Wednesday radar that I was joking to friends, oh, they must have been watching. And now I feel like <laughs> that's obviously <laughs> no. not the case. But no. they were watching and they just strongly disagree with my take. Yeah, Republicans <laughs> are criticizing the FBI, um, some of our surveillance state. Um, uh, they Now, it, it's a little cynical because it's just because Republican political figures now feel like law enforcement structurally is not on their side. Yeah. They're still, you know, they're still going to say back the blue. Yeah, no, no, that's a fair point. They're still going to say back the blue, you know, back your local community yeah. cops. They're saying the system is out to get Donald Trump, is out to get Republicans, uh, which, you know, which is not a totally ridiculous claim whatsoever, given what we're learning about how the FBI handled the Hunter Biden probe, um, yeah. to, be, to be fair. Yeah, and it is, in fact, the same. I'm sorry, there, there is a part of the right that really hates the word system or systemic. Mm -hmm. um, but what they're describing with the FBI, the systemic issues with it and the systemic corruption, regardless of whether or not, or not you think it's correct in this one instance of investigating Trump, is exactly what other marginalized groups have been saying for years. That it's not about that specific cop being a jerk or a cab right. or any of these kinds of things. We all have people, you know, people who are central to the left movement, like Nina Turner, come from families of police officers. Many of us have police officers in our lives. It's not that personal kind of attack that it's always been framed as. It is wh whether or not these people are being empowered and put in the best situation to interact with the communities they're supposed to protect and serve, or whether or not these systems are making them have this antagonistic relationship that's having all of these terrible outcomes. And here's the uh, Ted Cruz comments that I alluded to earlier. Let's watch those. I want to say thank you so much for all you're doing to fight for Ruth Walker and to take back the Senate. And I just think it's so important that like you guys are actually do defund all those IRS agents. Absolutely. But I think it's imperative that you really have to defund the FBI after all the witch hunts that are going on. It is horrific, the abuse of power at the FBI, and it's wrong. And, and there needs to be a, a complete house cleaning that, that happens at the FBI. Are you all going to be able to do that when you retake the Senate? I, I think we need to fight to do that. We need to fight to have real oversight. All right, I guess he didn't really say def actually shut down or defund the FBI. He said house clean. What he's yeah. suggesting is we need to get rid of the um, the the officials at the FBI who are hostile. Well, to people were, were pointing but. to like what they perceived to be a nod as she was saying to fund the FBI, as him corroborating that. I mean, somebody comes up to you, talks to you at a, at an event. I nod along to what they're saying. Honestly, <laughs> even if what they're saying is totally insane, I nod along because yeah. I want to have a pleasant interaction and move on to my next interaction. Yeah. But uh, For sure. But it is interesting to see if this kind of pressure on public officials in this way, both privately and on a more public stage, will yield some results. And this is what I was you know, saying in the course of my yeah. radar and my remarks about this. To the extent that there is any momentum behind this movement that lasts more than this month's uh, news cycle, it would behoove those who have a sincere interest in FBI reform to put something on the table so that it can be shaped in their image. If leftists have their own view of what reform looks like, that doesn't mean diminishing accountability for people who are actually powerful and elites like Donald Trump, and instead is trying to curb the abuses against the people that the FBI normally attacks, who are much more marginal figures, then they should put forward that, that legislation and not leave it up to the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. Mm. Joe Biden also made some remarks about guns that I wanted to respond to. Can we go back and play those as well? We skipped over them. And for those brave right-wing Americans who say it's all about keeping America, keeping America's independent and safe, if you want to fight against a country, you need an F-15. You need something a little more than a gun. 
No, I'm not joking. Think about this. Think about the rationale we use that's used to provide this. And who are they shooting at? Shooting at these guys behind me. So let me say this to my MAGA Republican friends in Congress. Don't tell me you support law enforcement if you won't condemn what happened on the 6th. So I wanted to respond to the first part of that, which I think is completely wrong. And I often hear this argument, and I just think it's so wrong. So this is the argument that um, some gun control people make. will say, okay, the purpose of the Second Amendment uh, you know, is, is, a, is a, so you can have a militia, you can have people take up arms against an, a hostile government. Um, including our own government. That's why the founders thought it was important to let the people have guns. That, but then gun control people will say, but that's, by pre that's ridiculous. But you could not successfully defeat our government or another government with an armed populace because our government has missiles and planes and everything. But that's not true well, because the, the our, government, our government has lost over and over again, again in, in trying to invade and occupy Vietnam, Afghanistan. Uh, armed armed uh, guerrilla fighter type people have repelled uh, the American government and other government, you mm -hmm. know, highly organized governments. It's very hard to occupy hostile territory. You can, you can destroy every building. We destroyed every building in in, in, on the Korean Peninsula during the Korean War, still that didn't, didn't mean we were, were winning, right? It, people can repel and defeat. I mean, it's horrible, but through attrition, um, and, and, and you can make it so difficult that an invading, occupying force eventually gives up. So that whole, like, well, unless you could have people have their own um, planes, it wouldn't even be worth it, is just, is like, that's not true. Sure, that, that's funny. I mean, I don't disagree, but I actually was going to criticize that from the opposite direction insofar as it feels like. Biden is making the argument of Second Amendment advocates who say this is exactly what if, if Biden is saying, well, you need bigger weapons and more powerful right. oh, weapons. Oh, you're some Second Amendments would say to, yes, to that is also the government, covered yes, under the, that, that is yeah. why I need weapons of war. That's why I need all of these automatic weapons yeah. that keep getting involved in these mass shootings. Yeah, you're right. It was wrong in both ways. <laughs> both directions, Biden is wrong. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> okay, uh, we'll tell you what's on Brianna's radar coming up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, I've been thinking a lot about why a certain critique of Biden's student debt cancellation plan has been really bothering me. And I think I finally figured it out. It's because at the end of the day, it reminds me of the very problem that drove me to journalism and then to politics in the first place. Elites criticizing student loan cancellation on the basis that it's helping elites are not only lying to protect themselves, they're weaponizing working class identity to hurt the working class. They're doing weaponized identity politics, and it's wrong. Let me explain. I'm relatively new to rising, and some of you might not know that my journalism career was actually launched by a critique of identity politics. It was back in 2017, and I was just an anonymous lawyer, but I was being driven crazy by how identity politics were being weaponized to help Democrats peddle some really disgusting ideas. I didn't have a problem with the notion that people who had been discriminated against on the basis of their identity would band together with other people of the same identity background and fight for the rights that they had been denied. That kind of traditional, basic coalition politics always made sense to me, like a legal class action. If a bunch of people are hurt by the same pharmaceutical product or the same faulty brake system, obviously they should band together as a class and fight. But what was happening around 2017 felt different. Identity became more than just a loose proxy for some experience you might share with others. 
it became increasingly essentialized. Increasingly, people were asked not to consider candidates on an individual basis or to think for themselves. The identity of the candidate was supposed to be enough. Hillary was a woman and thus assumed to be the best candidate for women. And what's worse, the fact that she was a woman was held up as a justification for policy choices that actually disadvantaged women, like her selection of an anti-choice VP. Bernie supporters were characterized as Bernie bros for pointing this out. And feminist activist Gloria Steinem even said that female Bernie Sanders supporters were just doing it for the boys, a statement for which she later apologized. It was almost worse with Kamala Harris. After she was elected to the Senate in 2017, she was immediately floated as the future of the Democratic Party. She was black, she was Indian, she was female, she was a senator, she was attractive. What else did one need? But many progressives and criminal justice reform advocates across the aisle pushed back, pointing out that her record as a prosecutor in California was checkered at best. As I wrote in my 2017 article, while serving as Attorney General of California, Harris failed to prosecute Steve for foreclosure King Mukin after his One West Bank engaged in a notoriously aggressive pattern of home foreclosures. Harris's department found that One West had engaged in widespread misconduct in its treatment of borrowers. The investigators urged Harris to conduct a full investigation and provide a public accounting of what happened. Instead, Harris closed the case, not even pursuing a compromise measure of a civil penalty. Mukin later donated to her campaign. But people who raised this concern, along with her concerns about her punitive approach to truancy, were dismissed as racists and misogynists. As I wrote back in 2017, Neera Tandon, a close Clinton ally and frequent defender of the Democratic Party, said she found it odd that these folks have it in for Kamala Harris and Cory Booker in particular. Hmm, she said, implying that criticisms of Harris and Booker were racially motivated. MSNBC host Joanne Reed referred to Kamala critics as alt-left activists, and Brittany Cooper wrote that the left in general, but in particular the Sanders left, has a, quote, black woman problem. What a neat trick to use black people and a superficial advocacy for representational diversity to deflect from actual policies that hurt all the black people who were not named Kamala Harris. I find it difficult to imagine something more unsettling than weaponizing a person's identity in order to shield them from having to answer for how they've hurt the very group they claim to represent through their actions, through policy. So why am I bringing this up now? How does this relate to the topic du jour, student debt? Well, many critics of Biden's plan are doing something similar in my eyes, but this time the identity is working class status. Like Kamala defenders, they claim to have the best interests of working people at heart. At the same time, they push to suppress policies that would help working class people policies they themselves have benefited from, policies like access to a college education. And her writer on Monday, rising co-host Batyangar Sargon, took a stand for the working class, apparently harmed by Biden's student debt plan, citing, quote, first-year corporate lawyers and accountants as the main beneficiaries of the policy. But as she knows, the income caps would foreclose any corporate lawyer from having their debt canceled, starting salaries for corporate lawyers 
are well above the income cutoff, and only 0.3% of federal debt holders went to an Ivy League school at all. In fact, 90% of the debt relief will go to those making under $75,000 a year, a huge difference from Trump's tax cuts, 83% of which went to the top 1% of earners. And to get to the top 1% of owners by the, earners, by the way, you have to earn nearly $600,000 a year. Batia acknowledged that some of the aid would go to the deserving, but quote, more of it would go to elites. That's simply not true. And it's not clear why someone would try to demonize a policy that targets people too poor to pay for college without going into debt. And even more troubling, why they would use working class people to do so. I want to be clear. If you don't support student debt cancellation because you're concerned that it's not the most targeted thing to address poverty, I get it. I agree. It's not at the top of my policy agenda, but it is the most targeted thing Biden can do without Congress, e.g. by executive order. That's why we're talking about this right now. Biden can't snap his fingers and make public colleges free, but he can do this. And if you're troubled that student debt cancellation doesn't get to the root of the crisis, I also agree. That's why I've always supported Bernie's plan, which was to use a small tax on Wall Street gambling to fund free public colleges and universities. But what bugs me are the people who are arguing that it's somehow elitist to give poor and working class students a chance at the same opportunities wealthy people can access, the same opportunities that Newsweek editors with graduate degrees can access. Comedian Bill Maher provided another example of elite faux populism recently. A few days ago, he complained about the student debt cancellation policy, but in doing so, unwittingly made a strong argument for college debt reform. Take a listen. 50 years ago, 70% of good jobs required a high school diploma. Now, they say 70% require a college degree. Mm -hmm. So I know this is like supposed to address income inequality, but it kind of does the reverse because it's the people who have college degrees. Who yeah, but there are also parents of those kids who don't have college degrees who want their kids to be able to go to college so that they can have a better life than they did. And we have to address the, 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 the cost of going to college. I mean, I'm an old man, but when I went to college, you know, at UCLA, uh, it, it cost me $242 to go to school for a whole year. Now it's crazy how right, what you have to pay. And it's unfortunate. It's and it does target the, the, the kids that are most, uh, you know, most in need. If 50 years ago, 70% of jobs required just a high school diploma, and now 70% require higher education, why would try to withhold aid from people who have responded to that reality by getting an education, and in doing so have fallen into this exploitative trap of the for-profit college industry? Even if you believe that other people deserve relief more, and I would love to pay off some people's trucks, Few people argue that students who have had to pay many times more in college costs than generations before them don't also deserve help. A rich kid with rich parents who can pay out of pocket might pay $160,000 for a degree. A working class kid paying off that debt over 10 years at a, at a moderate 4.5% interest rate could expect to pay nearly $40,000 more for the same education. And that's even assuming they could keep up with the $1,600 a month payments. So why again the urge to punish students 
rather than the educational institutions that screwed them. If you want to get at the root of the college cost crisis, by all means, push Biden to do so. Push your elected representatives to vote for legislations to do so. I do. I will. But why try to take away one of the few programs designed to benefit the people hurt by this elite gatekeeping? One of the few programs Biden has the power to enact without needing to get permission from a corrupt Congress. Zachary Carter tackled this question beautifully in a recent article. As he pointed out, this is a policy that targets middle and working class people. 40% of people who attend college are enrolled in a community college. People making more than $125,000 a year are excluded from the program, as is nearly all debt from law, medical, and business school. About half the total write-off will benefit people in the bottom half of the income spectrum, nearly all of it to those in the bottom four quintiles. And of course, the government subsidizes middle-class people all the time. It's the central promise of nearly every political campaign. So why all the vitriol over student debt? When we argue about student debt, he says, we aren't really debating credit policy, inflation, growth, or the separation of powers under the U.S. Constitution. All of these avenues of discussion are actually elaborate detours around the central issue, the structure of the American social order. In other words, who gets to be on top? Rob Reiner really hit the nail on the head in the same Bill Maher segment. Yes, college is unaffordable. It's about making college more unnecessary. It's a giant scam. It's a consumer product that they're selling you as a golden ticket to be in the upper middle class. But they're not really getting any education. Did you and go to college? Of course. Of course. Because that's And look what, at the job you have. That, You're a big right. time guy and have your own show. Exactly. Bill Maher went to college. He knows that college graduates on average earn more. But despite seeking out an education himself and embracing those advantages for himself, he seems to want a different set of opportunities for everyone else. Look, college didn't used to be a scam when Bill Maher went to school. In the 70s, you really could work a summer job and pay off a few hundred or a few thousand dollars in tuition. But what summer job will pay you the twenty or $60,000 it takes to graduate from college today? Today, college is still a good deal for the rich, while it's a scam for poor and working class kids who, because of interest, pay more for the same credentials as their rich counterparts. That's driving an income gap wider and wider. And what do elitists like Bill Maher have to say about that? Tough luck, I guess. Elsewhere in the clip, Mark claims that the jobs he says he respects don't really require much in the way of training. Specifically, he points to nurses, saying his mother was a nurse and using her working class bona fides to argue that in actuality, nurses don't need to go to college. I mean, that's an odd sort of stolen valor. Mars take strikes me as weirdly dismissive of the enormous skill required to be a nurse. Is it populism to diminish the skills working class people worked hard to acquire that enable them to do their jobs? And even if you think nurses shouldn't get training before they you know, measure out and inject drugs into your veins, it is in fact required right now today. The average nursing student graduates with between forty dollars and $55,000 of debt. Some nurses spend decades paying it off. Is it really elitism to want to help them? And when the overwhelming majority of debtors are people like Carolyn from Arkansas, who after 44 years of nursing is still paying off her master's of science in nursing, 
Is it ethical to pretend that the mere existence of Harvard lawyers who do not qualify for forgiveness justifies ripping away much needed aid from the first responders and from American laborers? Listen to how Ted Cruz describes the working class in this clip. There is a real risk if, if you are that, that slacker barista who, who, who wasted seven years in college studying completely useless things, now has loans and can't get a job. Joe Biden just gave you 20 grand. Like, holy cow, 20 grand. That, you know, maybe you weren't going to vote in November and suddenly you just got 20 grand. And, you know, if you can, you know, get off the bong for a minute and, and, and head down to the voting station uh, or just send in your mail-in uh, ballot that the Democrats have helpfully sent you, um, it could drive up turnout, hmm. uh, particularly among young people. There's a lot going on there, including the implication that it's bad to be easier to vote uh, and making up kind of characters on, on the Internet to be mad at. But principally, a slacker barista? I I'm sorry. It's someone less worthy or less American or less hardworking or less working class if they work in the service industry versus another field? Someone should tell Ted Cruz that the world has changed a lot in the past few decades, in part due to a bipartisan cohort of elites shipping American manufacturing jobs overseas. The average working class voter today isn't a man in West Virginia with a hard hat and a mine. 17% of jobs are in the service industry. Education and health services jobs employ more people than any other sector. So why do people like Bill Maher and Ted Cruz, people whose jobs depend on appealing to a broad audience, feel so comfortable punching down at the people they purport to stand for. At the end of the day, the arguments these elite anti-elitists are making amount to an argument that poor and working class people shouldn't have the same chance to go to college that they did. I don't see any other way around it. Inevitably, everyone arguing against student debt cancellation has themselves gone to college, at least here in the context of this clip and in this show. They have or will send their kids to college. As unfair as it is, they know what social capital comes from going to college, and they're more than aware of the increased earning potential that comes along with a college degree. So why isn't what's good for the goose good for the gander? It's easy to get in front of the camera and call out elites. Some people have made a lot of money posing as populist heroes. But take a step back and really consider, who is fighting for the working class to get access to the same things elites have in terms of education, workplace protections, health care, and housing security? And who is just shooting down populist policies? Why do people who claim to hate elites seem to have the very elite education they now want to make nearly impossible for lower-income Americans to achieve? Why is it that they criticize elites but never seem to bring up taxes on the rich? Do they only put down policy proposals without proposing alternatives? I'll acknowledge the flaws in Biden's plan. It doesn't go far enough or get to the root of the problem. But the left has been consistently fighting for more. Can faux populist heroes bashing this plan, which again is one of the few things Biden can do with an executive order, say the same? Weaponizing identity politics is pernicious precisely because a marginal identity is being used to hurt the very communities it pretends to protect. You hate it when it's used to insulate Kamala Harris from criticism. Is it any better? when elites do it to protect the status quo in which they thrive. I mean, look, we've discussed this a number of times. I'm on the botcha side of this, and I agree with actually with Bill Maher. Um, I don't think it's this hypocrisy 
to go to college or or and, and also many people who are against this forgiveness went to college but maybe they made different choices to avoid in where they're going to go and how long they were there and what they majored in to avoid accruing debt or to accrue less debt uh, maybe they didn't go to the fanciest most expensive place maybe they didn't maybe they tried to finish in three years rather than four or five and uh, this this is look if you could it's not about just wanting to hurt people who are in debt but they agree, people agreed to take on this debt it wasn't forced on them it was a voluntary interaction i would like to take borrow this money from the american taxpayer and i will pay it back under these terms i think this system is bad we've talked about this at length I, the system should be changed. The college costs need to be made affordable to the people, at least if we're talking about public institutions. That only makes sense to me. What should Biden do to do that? I don't, but I don't, uh, I don't necessarily agree that this is, um, that he can, uh, he's he sort of declared or thinks that he can. We'll find out if the court agrees that uh, this policy can be done without Congress. I'm not confident that it can. He, he's been doing it for two years and Donald Trump started. Well, just because Donald Trump did it doesn't mean it's constitutional. Right. But it's something that's been ongoing for two years. So mm -hmm. to overturn the precedent of being able to at very least suspend these payments, which is what cancellation ultimately can be, is an indefinite suspension of these payments, then you're going to have to do a lot of retrofitting to the last two years of public policy where these objections have not been raised. Yeah, I don't. So here's the question. Fine. If, if you've had these other alternative ways, and I'm sure everyone's thought very hard about, about how to help working people, what are they? I've said we should change the whole... How? And, and show me the record of having supported all of these policies for years that would get to the root of the issue. Because I can show you, going back years and years, that I have been fighting hard, going to protests, working for campaigns, advocating across this country for exactly those kinds of policies. What I'm noticing is I've been is advocating the abolishing people, the student loan program for 10 years. I, I'm noticing a lot of the people who have a lot to say in this instance, have done little to nothing from a policy perspective to try to promote some of the alternatives that they were just now throwing out here, just in the one occasion where a couple of dollars are actually coming into the way of people who earn $125,000 a year. We live in a country where Joe Biden- billion dollars out of our, that we lent, we lent that money. It's a tax base that is being paid into by the exact same people who are benefiting from it. I don't own a house, Robbie, but you get to take a mortgage. Well, I don't know if you own a house or whatever, but people who do, do own homes own get to take mortgage deductions up to $750,000 a year on their homes. Do you know what the ma maximum deduction on your taxes is for if you have student debt? I don't. It's only $2,000, and that's only if you make less than $60,000 a year. If you make over $60,000 a year, it's zero. So tell me why. Probably the taxes are unfair. Tell me, we have tell me why, Robbie, we live in a country where every Democrat, every, every Democrat and Republican vows to make life better for the middle class. We have tax break after tax break for the middle class. Joe Biden declares that he's not going to raise taxes, not just on the middle class, but anybody earning under $400,000 a year, an amount that is well over what many people would consider to be just middle class. And there's none of that vitriol and backlash against any of those policies. But the second there is a, a distribution that is going to be made to people whose parents were literally too poor for them to pay for their education. So 
suddenly we have to say, oh, if you're a middle-class person getting aid from the government, you're suddenly a, a deplorable who's not supposed to be benefiting in any way. And you have people talking about folks that used to be considered the bedrock of our labor class, dismissed by Ted Cruz as though their lives don't matter, their labor doesn't matter, their work doesn't matter, like some work is better than other. I'm sorry, that is elitism. Having giving people the same opportunity that Ted Cruz, who went to Harvard, has to get the education that enabled to him to have the career that he has and be the millionaire that he is today, that is not elitism. Everyone shouldn't have to go to college. I think it's, it's elitist to slam working people, baristas. Yeah, Ted Cruz, fine. Terrible. Bad. But so, uh, people I, who don't uh, want to forgive the debt obligations that others willingly took on, that they don't want forgiven because they paid their own way and they took out loans and they made it work, those people are frustrated and I understand their frustration. Well, I'm one of those people. I've paid more to student debt than probably 99% of people in this country because I had a bigger student loan burden than 99% right. of the people in this country. And I would never begrudge anybody else uh, the opportunity to get from out from under their debt. It has been a real mitzvah for me to be able to be in the top percent of earners and to be able to keep up with my debt burden. But unfortunately, as I've witnessed with so many of the people in my life, one misstep, one ill parent, one disability uh, uh, for yourself, one firing because there's a recession and the job market crashes and you are no longer able to keep up with those payments and they balloon. The people who are getting their debt canceled are people who have been paying. It's a scam, like Mar said. Don't do it. Don't take them out. Right. Don't subscribe to and, it. Don't my, do it. And my position it's is not this. worth it. If you don't have an alternative, if you don't have, if, you're, if you've never talked about taxing the rich, if you've never talked about ways that you could equalize um, inequities that might happen on the fringes of this kind of policy by just taxing people who do have windfalls, then you are not a good faith actor. And what you're ostensibly doing, what you're literally doing, is spending all of your time and energy attacking the one policy that Joe Biden can do to actually help poor and working people at the same time that you cloak that objection in a faux elitism. And frankly, I think that's the kind of the worst kind of weaponized. Well, I described policy. a plan in my radar yesterday for what I would do differently. I think if the income-based repayment I think is a good plan, but should be done directly with some arrangement with the colleges rather than the government for that. Proposing plans that are going to be blacked back by Congress is a bait and switch. Biden what? can what do this. It? There's sorry. a plan. Are, are, your, are, your, are Republicans going to get on board? Are all the Republicans like Ted Cruz going to vote for legislation? They're not. And I think that Democrats should propose uh, legislation. I said this in my radar last week, that you should bring up all of the plans that the left has already written that are sitting there ready to be signed and voted on to actually fix the root of the problem. But the fact that they have never paid attention to those plans is proof positive that they don't actually care about working class people. Well, we're talking passages. I'm not defending Ted Cruz. I welcome alternatives. But people who sit around with their graduate degrees and their elite jobs, looking down their nose saying, oh, we should just have all of this sympathy for people who are toiling away and serving me my coffee. The idea that you would say something as elitist as that and pass it off as being a working class hero is one of the more craven, disgusting things that I personally have ever witnessed in the context of this uh, conversation. And that's why I want to do this radar about it today, Robbie. All right. Well, you tell us what you think about this subject. We obviously disagree very, very fervently. We'll have more rising right after this. California State Senate passed a bill last night that could result in a doctor's state license being revoked if they spread false or misleading medical information about COVID vaccines or treatments. According to Axios, the law would designate spreading false or misleading medical information to patients as, quote, 
unprofessional conduct, subject to punishment by the Medical Board of California. If California Governor Gavin Newsom were to sign the bill into law, California would be the first state to take legal action against medical practitioners in response to the spread of false COVID information. So their rationale is that, well, this isn't just misinformation. If it's a doctor doing it, it's, you know, they should know better. It's extra bad. Uh, look, I, I mean, I just think this is totally insane because uh, for an obvious problem of what qualifies as misinformation um, and so many things that have been deemed misinformation are have now been changed that you know the idea that the changing we've gone over this a million times with the change on masks on whether vaccines were preventing transmission um it was it was said that they were at the beginning now we know that it's not um and and also like 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 look you doctors might you know they might you might ask your doctor should i get my child vaccinated and different doctors might tell you reasonably different things like yeah i'm all about vaccines you should do it it's really good for public health Etc. It's good for long COVID, good for all those reasons. Another doctor might say, you know what, your kid really is not at risk of COVID, and this, and I don't see in the data any really differences in, in COVID in performance right. while you have COVID between vaccinated and unvaccinated, so I can't really recommend you necessarily or, have to get it. And those are both perfectly valid opinions that we're kind of like litigating in the public policy sphere, but the idea that a doctor could lose his license for saying that, as they could under this policy, is insane. Or how about that new study that talks about how it's, it looks, it's increasingly looking like the risk of my, my, myocarditis for men under 40 from the vaccine is similar to the risk from getting COVID, yeah. you know, and there's a, it, if that's your primary concern, obviously there's other risk factors associated with actually getting COVID, including long COVID and things that we talked about yesterday on the show. But if that were your one-off and you had a history of heart issues, a doctor can make a recommendation based on that kind of a knowledge. And it also does seem to be in the situation that this is trying to address a problem that I'm not really sure exists is the root of kind of a lack of vaccine compliance or whatever it is they're trying to get to the bottom of really driven by misinformation from medical professionals? Right. No, that's a, I, I don't think that it is. So the bill describes misinformation as false information that is contradicted by contemporary scientific, uh, contrary to the standard of care. So there, there we have an obvious problem in that the, the scientific consensus is often not a consensus. There's right. often disagreement. There was disagreement at the top levels of our government about when and whether to recommend boosters for people. There were disagreements between Biden's team and Rochelle Walensky and other CD officials. There was dissension within the CDC about whether to really push boosters or not. Like top people, very smart people whose entire jobs are to pour over these questions reach different conclusions. So the idea that you would constrain doctors from uh, from from going off script or off message. I mean, maybe what they're maybe the concern we're getting at here is like is ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine or something. They want to constrain uh, a doc because I my understanding is that some doctors did let uh, you know the images are of people like rushing the shelves to get ivermectin, <laughs> but that some doctors did they allow or prescribe it, yeah. uh, because in in that case and, and while I don't think from looking at the data that it's a particularly compelling data that ivermectin does help you. I I, I think and I've said on the show I, I think. The, the data that did show a, a very slight good outcome for ivermectin comes from other countries that actually do have a lot of intestinal parasites, and I think it probably helps people who have intestinal parasites who happen to also have COVID. But, uh, but it's also not a har it taken in, in, in the appropriate doses. It's not harmful. It's not sure. horse tranquilizer. It's, it's, a, it's given. It, 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 there's nothing wrong with it. And also, there's nothing wrong with 
with healthy, safe experimentation of things like that. Because if we were to find out that was really that was beneficial, that would be a good thing. Now, I, right, people just doing well, it on their I, own is is. I think that there are already rules and regulations about the extent to which doctors can kind of be running these yeah. ad hoc trials out of their office and what they what is you know medically indicated for them to do and whether or not it goes out of their outside of their duty to care there's already rules about this if a doctor is not performing you know in accordance with the hippocratic oath there's already right. a, a whole regulatory agency within the profession to deal with this and i wonder now that i think about it and i think about how this would even be enforced i mean it would have to be a patient ratting out their doctor if this is really more about preventing doctors like Leanna Wynn who have been publicly making statements that are you know, some people find to be out of step with the CDC or mm -hmm. out of step with what quote unquote science says, keeping them from doing like a lecture tour circuit, let's say, and talking about issues in a way that is not liked very much right. by like the, the kind of Democratic Party consensus right now. I mean, this is just a good example of California being utterly, utterly insane. I mean, this is so crazy. Well, look, it's... it's no been, other state it's has a, done this or even considered anything well, California, like this. California hasn't done it yet either, so we'll see right. what happens. Well, I mean, happens. the state, the legislature did. Gavin Newsom just maybe won't... I don't know if he's going to sign it or not. Let's, is there any indication he will sign it? I'm not sure. It's, it's unclear, I think, right now. But, you know, look... It's a democracy. If people want to try to put this kind of thing forward, if this is the spirit of people in the state, the whole point of the federalists among us is that they want these states to be test kitchens for different kinds of rules. And, you know, the same way that I said this about whatever state it was, I think, in the southeast that had some uh, a school board uh, discussion we were having last week mm -hmm. about, you know, banning certain books or not wanting a certain kind of education about 1619 Project or what have you. You know, if it votes, it floats. But I do think that this seems to be, even if you really did believe that there was medical misinformation that was causing harm to people, not a policy that's particularly targeted to getting at the right. root of if, it. If what they're, and if what they're talking about is, right, them spreading, doctors spreading misinformation, like, like going on Fox News or saying things that, right, the, the California legislature doesn't agree with, now we're getting into, uh, despite your comments about, you know, sure, letting states experiment with different policies, well, we're getting into very clear First Amendment territory. Yeah, I agree. Um, just like <laughs> absolute, I mean... The, the Supreme Court would slap this down in five seconds. It would be a, it would be nine zero. Because that is also like that's attenuated from their actual medical practice. So, like I was saying, right. sure, if you're prescribing something that's not medically indicated, then there's rules and there's a response that that's already built in. There's a liability. In. But you're thing. allowed to go out and say whatever say, you want right. in the world, except for a law like this, which I do think will run into some issues. So a group called the Physicians for Informed Consent filed a lawsuit earlier this month seeking, seeking an injunction against the Medical Board of California citing First Amendment rights. The group said in a statement it wants to protect the free speech of all physicians in the state and calls the bill's definition of the word misinformation hopelessly vague. And this goes to a criticism I have of of this entire misinformation industry, yeah. which has become such a misguided way of thinking about every issue. Um, borderline conspiratorial in tone, yeah. uh, describing like coordinated efforts to, to uh, often coordinated efforts originating outside the country by nefarious Russian actors. And that's why people are so confused is because yeah. there's, you know, look at the whiteboard. It's this group and this group. It's kind of Charlie from It's Always Sunny thinking about these issues in just an utterly, and then they end up sounding as crazy as 
the people they're criticizing yeah. who say crazy things. God forbid people just talk to each other and have conversations about the gaps between their beliefs the way that you did so nicely uh, with Walker Bragman on my podcast last week or earlier this week. You know, I think that it really helps to clarify the differences of opinion and what is legitimate, what is um, rooted in not having enough information yet, what is just a difference of opinion in terms of your appetite for shutdowns and different kind of uh, social disruptions or cost bit of analysis. You know, that is such a much more progressive, uh, productive conversation to be having than all of this conspiratorial, mm -hmm. you just have bad faith, you're just, you know, uh, conspiratorial, you're just, you love horse Your Russian handlers are, Russian handler. have convinced you. You're out to get everybody. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. This is toxic. Well, Newsom is expected to make a decision on this in about three weeks, so we'll make sure to keep our eyes on any developments. And of course, we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Stay tuned. Arizona Senate candidate Blake Masters is facing some backlash for comments he made this week about affirmative action. It started when the Arizona Republican mocked an Associated Press article about diverse leadership at the Fed, quipping, quote, finally a compelling explanation for why our economy is doing so well. Masters then followed up with this video. Let's watch. Well, this tweet made people mad. Newsweek wrote, oh, Blake said that women and minorities are hurting the economy. Fake news. Look, I don't care if every single employee at the Fed is a black lesbian, as long as they're hired for their competence, and not because of what they look like or who they sleep with. News for Joe Biden. We are done with this affirmative action regime. You know, I can't think of a single policy since the end of Jim Crow that's been worse or more divisive for race relations in this country. Race quotas are wrong. Gender quotas are wrong. They're unjust. They're illegal. But the Democrats are addicted to this kind of identity politics garbage. They just care about how you look not whether you're the best qualified or whether you can do the best job. Masters currently is trailing behind his Democratic opponent, Mark Kelly, by three points. <clears throat> Excuse me, our rising panel joins us now to weigh in. Will Jawando is a Democratic strategist and council member at large in Montgomery County, Maryland. And Denise Long is a Newsweek contributor and business consultant. Welcome to you both. Good morning. All right, Denise. Is Blake wrong here? Has there been a kind of disproportionate emphasis on identity coming from the Biden administration in lieu of substantive policies that would benefit the broader public or specifically the groups uh, that belong to the, you know, the identity groups that are so championed in, in tweets like the one uh, about the Federal uh, Reserve staffing? So Blake is wrong on many levels. I, I think and in many ways, the left has also framed identity in a way that emphasizes identity and not the uh, the reality that those people's way of seeing the world, understanding the world, and experiencing the world brings qualitative things to the organizations, to government fun governance functions that hadn't been present. So. Blake assumes in my read of his tweet and then in his video that those people are not qualified. So it's like he's contradicting himself throughout what he is saying, right? He assumes they're not qualified. Well, make sure they're qualified, even, you know, though they're gay or black or whatever the case may be. And at the same time, he's saying that he's not saying that they're not inherently qualified. So there's this sort of mixed messaging that I think he and often on the right call uh, bring forth when they're talking about diversity. And I think it's because they're ignorant about what diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism is. And I think they have 
um, an inherent knee-jerk pushback against it and the qualitative, really meaningful things that people who don't see the world in the traditional ways of a white man, the qualitative things that we bring to the table. Hmm. Well, so I, I agree with you that, uh, you know, he was being a little hyperbolic on how he was framing this as like the worst, you know, affirmative action, worst policy ever. And, and, and that he was, you know, it, it, I think it's fine for the Fed to point out, I guess, you know, the, the diversity of its of its staff, although, uh, you know, his, his the, the point he was trying to make that that's not, we need to talk about the policies of the Fed, not, you know, the identities of the people who work there is, is one I take. What, what did you think about this, Will? See, I, th I think this is a core debate and a core problem, not just on the Republican side. They weaponize it and use it uh, in the way that Blake Masters is trying to divide and his adoption of replacement theory and all this stuff and trying to dog whistle. But it's a problem on the left, and it's a problem in America. We have 330 million people. Uh, we're on our way to being majority people of color. Obviously, half women uh, or slightly more. Uh, the It's not only qualitative. I agree with my colleague. It's quantitative. Um, there is demonstrable different in, in difference in life experience uh, and background, and it helps you produce better policy. I make policy for a living. I've done it at the staff level. I'm an elected official. When I worked on Capitol Hill on the Health Committee, the Health Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, back when we bipartisanly did bills, I was the only black staffer in the room negotiating not No Child Left Behind. I grew up in a low-income, high-poverty school. That mattered in that discussion. Uh, if you look at Lisa Cook, Spelman grad, uh, Oxford, taught at Harvard, uh, PhD uh, from UC Berkeley, um, don't tell me she's not qualified. Um, and this is not about uh, putting people who are not qualified in place. It's about re uh, counteracting a legalized system of separation and discrimination, which Jim Crow was, fought, that, which was preceded by 12 and a half generations of forced chattel slavery to uh, deny people opportunity. So you have to correct against that. And affirmative action has actually mostly benefited white women. So it's another joke about this. But uh, we in, have to. In, do in what way? What do you mean by that? Uh, well, there's a lot of studies that have been shown. I can see people are chomping at the bit that it was designed by Nixon. It was prom it was it was uh, prominently put forward to help white women in the workplace, which isn't a bad thing because women have been discriminated against. But this idea that affirmative action has been this sea change and boon for black people or people of color is, is just not true. Yeah, the, the largest shift in terms of representation that happened in the kinds of institutions that used to, you know, you know, foreclose people from joining, whether it's women or people of color, or LGBT people, whatever. The biggest shift post-affirmative action was in the greater representation of white women, Let, much less so these other kinds of groups, which was still, you know, for Well, but that's not true in, in, I mean, to the extent that people complain about affirmative action, one of the, the largest categories that people are upset about, a, a category where even a majority of voters will vote against it in California, right, is school admissions, uh, where I don't think you can argue that because white women don't receive any benefit um, in well, the well, they do. I mean, I think the, the fact that, I mean, this is actually kind of fascinating. The fact that there's so much pushback against this idea that white women are somehow taking up disproportional space to their merit, you, you, the thought is, oh, they're about 50% of, of white people in school. That's how it should be. That's obvious. They're not disproportionate. Well, that's, that's exactly what people of color are saying about our existence in these spaces. However, when there's a tweet that simply announces, oh, there's representation at the Fed, there's this presumption that, oh, they must be 
not qualified, there's this implication that they're not qualified. When we're talking about white women, it seems as natural as the air that we breathe that half the white people mm. in any institution should be women without any questioning of whether or not there was some you know, uh, not a quota system, but some attention being paid to the demographic diversity in a gender context, which absolutely But I think did we're saying, and Masters is saying we shouldn't pay attention to that. It doesn't matter if it's all women but, staffed. But it does matter. It does matter. That's the it, point. It, it, does, it does matter. I mean, research, organizational development research and research about efficacy and efficiency shows that diverse teams are more efficient. They're also more effective at actually implementing policies to Will's point and designing interventions that actually change outcomes because the people who are there in those diverse teams bring a set of knowledge, both academically acquired knowledge and lived experience, which is I know something I know the right like hates, is the experience that you have lived to understand the issue in a nuanced way that had you not understood it, had you not lived it, you wouldn't bring to the table. And the reality is that research also shows white women excelled because of affirmative action in academia, also in terms of the boardroom. And, and here's the dog whistle with what Blake was saying and what the right often says. When you call it an affirmative action hire, you are assuming on the face that an affirmative action hire is an unqualified hire. So what I'd like to see from Blake and on the right is how do we undo the inequities that have happened, the ways in which people have been uh, pushed out of learning, the ways that uh, education is more likely in many environments to expel and incarcerate black men and increasingly black boys, let me say, and increasingly black girls from pre-K. Those things have an impact on a child's development. And to ignore race um, as a factor in how people grow, develop, and their career trajectory is just wrong. And I think it's incompetent for any leader or aspirational leader uh, to actually say that race doesn't matter. It matters because it affects how people grow and develop and the outcomes that they have in life. So Blake needs to focus on how to apply his Republican slash conservative principles to addressing these realities of life and to stop stoking uh, people's fear and anxiety because there are real issues that are affecting Americans. And with this constant like hair wringing, hair pulling, and really just setting fires is what he's doing. But, uh, it's not helpful. But I don't think, I, I don't think, uh... <laughs> Black girls in pre-K are more likely to get in trouble because or they are more likely to get in trouble. I, I don't think it's because they're black and that means they're less well behaved. I, it probably means they're more likely to have trouble at home because of poverty and and historical. Uh, I would encourage you to that. read the racial equity research that does yeah. show that the, 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 con the, the, the social skills and the socialization behaviors of black girls in uh, an environment and black boys in an environment is more likely to be seen, noticed and punished and seen as problematic from their teacher. Most of teachers are white, 80 to 85 percent of teachers and administrators are white. This is research where 
white researchers have gone into schools and they've actually looked at the correction behaviors that teachers demonstrate. And what they found is that the, so, the social behaviors of white girls is almost always deemed pro-social and desirable, even when the teacher asks a white girl to stop talking. If the white girl says, well, I wasn't really talking and argues with the teacher, the white child is still less likely to be sent to the office for talking back, to be disciplined for some of these very arbitrary uh, disrespect, for example, it's an issue and it needs to be addressed. And I think if people want to okay. talk about these things like Blake, they really need to consume the research because there's a mountain of social research that shows the reality, not just preference. Yeah, I want to get it back a little bit to the, the subject at hand because I do think that there mm -hmm. is a legitimate critique here of the way in which the left broadly, liberals have talked about identity politics that leaves an opening for people who feel uncomfortable and would be inclined to lean into the comments that Blake Masters is making because there's no alternative left critique. And I would say that mm. the, the example of Kamala Harris is a good one, where I think there were a lot of legitimate criticisms made of her uh, as soon as she was kind of put forward as the future of the Democratic Party after she uh, won her congressional seat. And people were concerned specifically about the parts of her record that demonstrated that she had an antagonistic relationship in California to black people. And so her being uh, black or half black was used as a way to shield her from that kind of critique in a way that many people on the left found to be kind of perverse. And I wonder, Will, mm. have you thought about that at all and how to disentangle what might be a left critique of identity politics being used as an overly broad brush, pretending that every black person has the same exact experience, especially these affluent black people like Kamala Harris, Harris whose life experiences don't really track the majority of black people. You know, is it is it legitimate to start to tease that apart and to try to, to start to critique how we implement these diversity programs in ways that don't always attend to class and some other factors of diversity that matter as well? Yeah, that's it's a great point. I think, you know, first, race matters in, a, in so many ways. Uh, you know, my colleague was talking about in the school context, it's present in the healthcare system. Uh, you know, all the studies showing that African-Americans were seen to be able to withstand more pain by doctors, were lying about their, what they were feeling, uh, you know, go down the list, uh, you know, how quickly police officers respond in controlled settings, testing to an unarmed black person versus an armed white person, white or black officer. So the idea that race doesn't matter, doesn't factor in. Just in Maryland, just a couple of weeks ago, is a national story. We had a family that got in a home appraisal at 400,000, sent a mm -hmm. white person Mm -hmm. A couple weeks later, it was 700000 So the idea that race doesn't matter is a joke. But to your point... The housing price might have just increased that much. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh. <laughs> um, uh, I tried to give you multiple points there. But yeah, to your I, point... I was yes. just kidding. I, 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 I take your point. You were. But on the parsing it out, absolutely. That's why in the educational context, for example, race is appropriately one factor of many, including socioeconomic status, are you a first-generation college student? It should be part of the picture that's used to uh, determine the holistic nature of whether a student needs has been historically disadvantaged. I think that's an appropriate way to weight those factors. Just because you're black, there's a whole bunch of different types of black, right? But mm -hmm. there is a baseline, though, that someone sees someone and, and, and sees that they're black, they're going to think certain things about them. They might not think all the things about them, but that's the way oppression works. There's been caste systems that have been created and people have been put above based on income or skin color or go down the list. 
but uh, so yes, we should we shouldn't look we should look at everyone's individual circumstance, but understand that there's a baseline that has been created in this country for 500 plus years, going back to colonialism, that subjugates and puts different uh, value on people of color and women and other marginalized groups. All right, but let me take one more crack at this, since we're talking about hiring and those kinds of things. Um, I, yes, it can be valuable to have a diverse perspective or to have over- overcome a disadvantaged background. And I right, can see it, how... There. Just stop there. We're good. We got it. Got you. <laughs> okay, then we all agree. But if you just say we're looking or we're waiting um, skin color in, in our applicant pool this much, you're not necessarily getting at that because some people um, who are black have not. But Robbie, I, I will but say it's not just skin color. It is the idea that I will never understand what it is to live and be Blake masters living growing up next to a golf course the whole bit i will never understand what it is like to live as a white man i should not be writing policies uh on my own about white men because i don't understand all the lived experience i would need to consult with people who do understand those things right the risk factors and the like um if i am going Mm. to address those social issues and the problem with how the right frames this is they see it only as race because i don't think they see an inherent value in what people bring to the table because of what they experience my, in my this country. My experience might be as different from Blake Masters as yours is. Right. It and might and well be, but that's why it's part of yeah, the, it, that's why it's part of the recruitment process. And then right. you do and the Denise, interviews and all of those things to get to We don't know anything an, about the recruitment process. We, we got to stop. We, we can't, we jump like 15 paces ahead. Robbie, your question presumed a lot about the recruitment process. We know literally nothing except for that the Fed put mm. out a tweet that said, oh, look, the Fed is diverse. And look at all of the assumptions that are built into that, that the Fed has a diversity initiative, that it's not just increased in equality that's caused there to be more diversity at the Fed, that more qualified black and brown and gay and whatever people have ha- simply qual- uh, applied for these jobs. And we have to ask ourselves why we're reading in this much into what's going on at the Fed. Now, I, we live in a country where I think we all understand why we have a certain kind of representation in Congress. You know, two people from every uh, state because we value, value geographic diversity and we don't just do it on a, on a basic population level despite the inequalities that re- result from that, from that kind of a parsing out. We understand diversity as a proxy uh, for different kinds of experiences. Even if the person from New York and the person from Texas went to the exact same school and had the exact same life experiences, we think that that's kind of the best we can do is to get these proxy measures for how to go about this. And I think that race is oftentimes an imperfect proxy and that class, frankly, does a better job of getting what we're at what we're really trying to get at in a lot of these hiring decisions. But I do think it's worth fundamentally interrogating why the presumptions in that tweet triggered the response from Blake Masters and a lot of the presumptions that have been operating here in this conversation. Yeah, in federal and maybe employment. do a better job of actually communicating and understanding what it is you're looking for. If at, as a leftist or whatever, if all you're looking for is someone who is black, you need to really understand what analytic lens and skills and expertise you are looking to bring to the table that is manifested in someone who is perhaps not the traditional uh, that doesn't represent the majority of the folks at your decision making table, whatever my, that table might be like currently. My understanding is in federal employment the number one uh, affirmative action kind of effort they do, which 
absolutely gets in the way of hiring people effectively is a preference for veterans um, that prevents mm -hmm. federal agencies from hiring the candidates they want to hire because they have to prefer veterans even if they're less qualified than other applicants. So that may, that's how it works with that field. I don't know about other identity categories, but that's one I've seen happen. Uh, all right, Will and Denise, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Residents of Jackson, Mississippi will have to go without running water for an indefinite amount of time after Governor Tate Reeves announced damage to a major pump at Jackson's main water treatment facility yesterday. The city of 180,000 people will have to face a heat index of 102 degrees without water to cook, clean, or bathe. Reporter and CEO for Status Quo News, Jordan Cheriton, interviewed one Jackson resident who said the crisis was a failure of the state government. Let's watch. Now we are here in 2022, and a governor who has um, totally neglected the plight of the infrastructure here in the capital city of Mississippi, and that's Jackson, Mississippi. And so even his, um, the governor's refusal to allocate or appropriate funds for infrastructure this legislative se session because he did not trust the black leadership that was leading the city of Jackson. Right. And so we keep seeing these racist tent, these extreme um, policies that are being put in place and neglect, extreme neglect that are putting um, uh, over 175,000 people in the city of Jackson in direct harm and danger because of petty politics. Jordan Cheriton joins us now to expand on his reporting. Welcome back, Jordan. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, tell us more about the situation. That sounds just like people will die for certain. I mean, that sounds horrible. Yeah, I mean, this has been going on water problems in Jackson for basically two decades. Uh, but there was also uh, boil water alerts and a water shutdown last year uh, after uh, another a winter storm like Texas had with its infrastructure. Same thing happened in Mississippi uh, and the water infrastructure couldn't handle it. So water was shut down. Uh, for weeks in Jackson. And you've basically had this tug of war that I agree uh, with Danielle. Uh, seems to have racial undertones to it. Uh, the governor uh, has essentially blamed the black leadership of Jackson, Mississippi for not making upgrades, despite Jackson, Mississippi having nearly 25% poverty. Uh, the governor has vetoed uh, bills that would provide infrastructure for things like water, sewer. Uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, and the lieutenant governor actually made a statement last year uh, pointing out that the last white mayor uh, in the late 90s uh, was the last time that they uh, handled their infrastructure correctly. So uh, Jackson has a long history, uh, white flight after desegregation uh, and kind of a tug of war between the predominantly white state leadership and uh, black leadership in Jackson, but the, the residents are, are suffering. It's really, really hot in you know late August uh, and they don't have water for you know obviously drinking, bathing, and even flushing the toilet. Yeah, it is really dispiriting that in the context of a crisis like this, people in the state would be playing a blame game. And I remember hearing people talk about this last time I was in Mississippi in the context of uh, the, camp the Bernie campaign and talking to local leadership about the way that 
funds were disproportionately spent outside of urban areas, despite the concentration of human beings and the tax base being in the big cities. And whether or not you attribute that to race, whether or not you attribute it to the class distribution of people who live in the state of Mississippi, it obviously is a problem to have the tax base of the state not being able to take advantage of the public funding that will be required to prevent a crisis like this. Um, you know, is there anything being done now that the crisis has emerged to address these, you know, basic fundamental infrastructure problems, if not from the governor, then the kind of disaster relief that we've seen deployed on a federal basis? Yeah, uh, the Biden administration has got involved. FEMA is involved. Uh, I think it's important to point out the history here. Uh, basically, this governor, uh, there was obviously a, a pretty big polarizing thing in terms of taking the Confederate flag down at the state capitol uh, a couple years ago. And after that, he went on a veto spree, uh, vetoing a lot of legislation that would have helped places like Jackson, vetoed uh, $50 million for the local hospital uh, in Jackson, uh, has vetoed, uh, you know, just public park uh, money for public parks, golf courses in Jackson, has vetoed uh, legislation uh, that would um, provide Jackson upgrades in infrastructure. Uh, he is also, you know, one of these governors de uh, denied Medicaid expansion uh, through Obamacare. And most recently, he says he's going to give $130 million back to the federal government that was earmarked for rental relief. There's still mm -hmm. money sitting in Mississippi that he's refusing to give. Uh, he's saying, we, you know, it's a liberal handout. We're going to give it back to the federal government. It would disproportionately help places like Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, but, you know, the, the levees in Jackson, the, this flooding came from the Pearl River, are very, very badly outdated. Uh, the federal government has, um, you know, said it will put money in, but the governor and the state has basically been delay, delay, stalling, stalling, uh, refusing to put in the necessary money from the state to help improve the levees uh, as well as other infrastructure that would help avoid this. Also, the water plant that now is on backup plants, like in Flint and other places, is badly outdated. It doesn't even have the proper equipment. Uh, you know, a lot of these water plants are 50 to 100 years old. The state has not provided funding for that either. Hmm. So what what is realistically going to happen, you know, to is any can anything be done to address this in the short term? You know, I think because now there's national, uh, you know, cameras, eyeballs on it, I think the governor is going to be forced uh, to pony up some money. Uh, he's already uh, he's sending in the National Guard. Uh, I believe, you know, from what I've read, uh, there's going to be kind of emergency sessions uh, to put more money in specifically to the plant. Uh, they've been understaffed for a long time, uh, equipment upgrades. Uh, but that's while the cameras are there. Unfortunately, with these stories, the cameras usually leave after, you know, a week or so. And that's where, you know, the corruption and cover up start. So uh, it remains to be seen. The governor is saying the right things now about, you know, the state helping to provide upgrades. But I think most of it's going to come from uh, the federal government. And we see groups like the Poor People's Campaign on the mm -hmm. ground are uh, providing, you know, uh, tens of thousands of uh, bottled water right now, almost, you know, kind of matching what the state government is doing. So it's kind of a TBD.
And, and Jordan, you know, obviously you've been doing such an excellent job covering the ongoing crisis in Flint, even after most of the TV cameras have left. Is this the kind of situation that can be remedied with infrastructure projects in the shorter term? Or is this going to be a situation like Flint where the cost of the investments are so high that it gives a certain degree of political cover to folks to not do anything at all? Yeah, I mean, this is an urgent crisis, not just in Jackson, everywhere. I mean, yeah. you know, MSNBC could rant about saving democracy. How about getting lead out of our water? Mm. I mean, this is happening all over the country. It's not just in poor cities, by the way. Mm. The pipes underneath, you know, New York City, D.C., Chicago, et cetera, are, you know, you're talking 70 to 100 years old. Uh, you have a lot of these water plants that through cities that obviously are cash strapped. Uh, are undermanned and uh, have, you know, improper, not up to date equipment. Uh, so we need like kind of like, a, you know, an F, a new deal style thing for infrastructure in this country. Biden's infrastructure deal, which if you look underneath the hood, was mostly privatization on steroids. Uh, it is it, a drop in the bucket. It does not replace all the lead service lines. It does nothing to deal with, you know, uh, industrial corporate pollution that goes into our waterways. So there's an urgent water crisis in this country. Most people have no idea what they're drinking. Uh, so we need, you know, people to take off the left and the right hats. I mean, water, not to be cheesy, is life. If, if your water's toxic, bad things are gonna happen. Uh, the woman I spoke with yesterday says there's an increase in breast cancers happening uh, in Jackson, Mississippi. You know, uh, toxic water has been linked to cancer and other bad health effects. So. Uh, we really need a government mobilization on the federal level, particularly uh, to deal with this infrastructure. You need to dig out all the lead pipes and you need to make major upgrades to water plants around the country. Mm. Yeah, one fact that I like to reflect on sometimes is that the J.P. Morgan Chase logo, that kind of a octagon spiral, is actually modeled on pipes because uh, the original, the company that became the bank was incorporated in part and given the, the, the charter to incorporate so that it would build the banks under New York and some of our major cities. And that is exactly how long ago some of those pipes have still been in existence with no further investment from that point. So I really appreciate you continuing to shine a light on this situation. And I'm sure we'll follow up uh, as we get continued news out of what's going on down there in Mississippi. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks for having me. We'll have more rising for you after this. Antifa members and protesters clashed outside a children's drag brunch near Dallas over the weekend. According to the New York Post, masked and armed Antifa members surrounded the event, locate the event location to block protesters from approaching. The Barrel Babes drag brunch was billed by organizers as where kindness and inclusion meets fabulous fun. Organizers promised no erotic behavior, and the restaurant even passed a no sexual content inspection from the Texas Comptroller's office prior to the event. Representative Lauren Boebert waded into the fray, tweeting, quote, a kid-friendly drag show in Texas was guarded by masked Antifa guards armed with AR-15s. Remember, they only want your guns. They want to use theirs to protect their depravity. Despite all of the protesting and commotion outside, owners of the restaurants at the event was a huge success with maximum capacity, no food left, and a win for love. All right, lots to unpack here with the Antifa drag brunch. Is there, brunch. Robbie? Is there a lot to unpack? <laughs> Look, I think a lot of the, uh, the Republican uh, commentary on this is being fairly dishonest. Um, there was no—I understand the—, the 
desire to not have children exposed to sexual content and some of the whatever the stripping or sexual dancing that was shown at some of these previous videos uh, of, of other events I can understand why people were bothered by it I still yeah, which is why there's a lot I still of, don't want to weigh in consistent objection to Hooters well among uh, let me crowd. I, I still don't ca I still would I don't what parents like I put parents in charge I don't want to I'm not going to question other families I don't approve of it it's really none of my business but any, but this event anyway was not was not sexual. Did not involve stripping. Did not involve sexual dancing. Um, it, it's just it's just literally men dressed up as women, which is which did not, did not used to be offensive. Like our founders would have found it offensive. They wore wigs. Shakespeare did on, it. right. <laughs> uh, in Shakespeare, all the the men played uh, the female roles. So there's a little bit of a moral panic about this exact thing. What's interesting is the the armed antifa people making sure, I guess, uh, hoping the right-wing people weren't going to get out of control, though the right-wing people just brought signs or whatever in protest, which is also protected behavior. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I know that some Antifa groups are not really down with gun control in the same way that yeah, of course. The Democrats There's are. Many factions of the left that strongly support, and in fact, especially <laughs> They need guns. Moment, How are they going to overthrow uh, the, the right, capitalist right patriarchy or whatever? Be armed. I've been having conversations with friends for a long time about, um, you know, going to a gun range and learning how to shoot because the world de demands it. Would I prefer to live in a world where there weren't, uh, it wasn't as easy to access guns and it wasn't as likely to be a victim of gun violence? Of course. But I also think that if this is the world that Republic, you know, conservatives and, and a lot of people want to have, then you can't exactly complain when the left responds in kind. It seems very hypocritical to me of Lauren Boebert to be upset about some people uh, you know, well, I don't taking know. advantage of the right that she fights for. for I don't so know. If she was saying she was upset about it. I think she was trying to call out the hypocrisy of but liberals is, who don't. Wait. Antifa is a group that has right. very consistently no, right. been uh, pro this the whole fair time. Enough. So what exactly is the hypocrisy? There's none. We talk a lot about this show about how liberals apparently are so ignorant about what conservatives are all about. It seems to me that the average conservative doesn't know the difference between a leftist, a liberal, a Democrat, and Antifa. That's and if fair you think hit. that Antifa That's is some like That's Democratic fair. Party mascot, then it shows a lot of ignorance on your part. That's fair. Uh, and I celebrate responsible gun ownership, responsible self-defense, which is what um, the group did here. There was not there wasn't a scuffle um, the the other group you know held back and did their little protest and the Antifa people defended the establishment and that is exactly why I support responsible gun ownership and responsible self-defense with guns that can be a perfectly legitimate uh, exercising of your rights and I happy to see that happen there so, so it's a win for all fun it's a, good time fun good time lots of food I mean this whole issue fun. is getting a little is getting a little a little more than a little <laughs> ridiculous the the threat of I just don't understand just why do you care like let other parents already face so much pressure to parent their kids exactly correctly and and to involve the Republicans seeming to suggest that they want to involve the state to, and I, I just keep trying to remind Republicans, the state is not ultimately going to be an arbiter of the kind of family values that you want to see practice. 
if you want, you should practice those values in your family and preach those values in your church and all of those things. But if you think you're going to have some child services-esque investigation that ends up um, uh, correctly enforcing your moral vision, that is going to go so wrong, so badly, in fact, could be used against conservative families for being excessively conservative, uh, which is something law enforcement has a long history if you want to go into... Uh, Unsafe, uh, keeping of guns in the home, any number yeah. of things that people could have... The government, the government hassles with. people and harasses people and just like, if you don't approve of this, it's totally fine. Um, I, I, I think so, some of the videos I, I've seen from some of these events were a little like, yeah, I don't know. But again, it's not my, it's not my business. Right, but we it's also threw up images from Florida that Dylan Work was complaining about of kids sitting in at Hooters, which is a restaurant, which is explicitly about showing off the female body as they serve you chicken wings, which is completely fine. But there is, right. look, in a lot of these moral panics, it becomes very clear when you look at very similar situations that it's not about the underlying thing. You know, people are very concerned about the idea that underage folks would, who are trans and wanting to transition would undergo a surgery that was irreparable and that mm -hmm. is very, you know, um, a big surgery, not a, not a, a small thing. And I understand that as a parent, I, me personally, I would have concerns, you know, should my kid get a tattoo young? Should they get a rhinoplasty young? These are all things that I would encourage people to wait along, you know, as long as possible for them to do because they are expensive, they are painful, there is some medical risk, yeah. you know, associated with it, regardless of whether, how I feel about any particular issue or the issue of transition in and of itself. But a lot of the people who are very, very upset about the idea of someone who is 17 year old, let's say, having transition surgery, don't bring that same kind of energy to other kind of surgeries. Like the thousands and thousands of girls who get right, it's because they just object to the surgery. It's, it's, the same it's thing the is surgery. you made the, the Hooters, they, it's just, they, don't, yeah. they don't object to that because they don't object to and, kind and, of and provocative use, female, they do object to yeah. men dressing up as women and dancing. And they That's use the provocative thing they language like to. chop yeah. off the breasts of women. And it's like, okay, or you could say it's a mastectomy. I think that that is significant enough. Mastectomies are serious. Or tops or whatever you want to call it, that's serious enough, but you can tell by the way that they reframe the language that they actually have to gin up a little bit more controversy than the, I could call a circumcision lopping off a piece of the male yeah. anatomy. Although there are a lot of people who object to, on the grounds that um, that babies cannot consent yeah, Andrew, to have that Andrew done. Yeah, Andrew Yang is one of them, and not that I'm having anybody's child, but I would I would very much, I'm not inclined towards circumcision myself. I don't but know it's a, how it's I a very it. <laughs> People, you, you have to acknowledge that people have very different energy right. levels. And there's a very different valence to the conversation when we're talking about one kind of mutilation versus another. Even when we're talking about female genital, genital mutilation versus male genital right. mutilation because of the cultural implications here. So let's just talk about the cultural factors and be honest about it instead of pretending it's about our, the medical um, decision itself. Yeah, our friend Kim Iverson got yeah. uh, kicked off a real hornet's nest uh, on Twitter last night arguing with Matt Walsh and Lauren Chen and some other uh, exactly conservative figures me, yeah. on exactly this question. And the point she was making is exactly what I said about this issue. Uh, I mean, I agree with her totally on Monday when Botch and I discussed it, is that I just don't understand how you could say uh, if, if a six, in some states, 16-year-olds can consent to sex, they can consent to get married, they can do all sorts of things. I don't, I couldn't, I can't understand the argument for why you wouldn't be able to then consent to have some kind of surgery. Now, maybe it should be 18, and, but it, it, 
it should be the same thing. If you can consent, if you can get married, have sex, have children, but you can't consent and, and to have really surgery, that doesn't make parents, any sense right? to me. I think yeah. most of these cases, it's like parental consent is being required here, and the parents are yeah. the ones that are paying for a lot of these surgeries. Yeah. And so people are really upset about the parents and their parenting decision, which again, there are a whole host of right. parenting decisions that I promise you I would have an issue with if I were to weigh in on other people's lives, but I simply I mean, choose the, not the, to. The policy, so the policy question only comes in if there's, if it's like, a kid wants this, a doctor's willing to do it, parents don't want mm -hmm. it. Although I, I don't, I, I think most doctors in this sphere maybe they're, will not do it if the parents don't want to do it. Yeah, and not to, just to because, a certain age. And in know, that, then it the does parents. come in, like if your parents don't. But because there's a, a bunch of social support that people need, right. they want to make sure that they're getting the right psychological support, that they have a place to recover. There's a, there's a whole host of factors that goes into people making these decisions and doctors recommending these. And so it just, it really is, I, I, I'm not saying that every case is cut and dry. But the, the fact is that a lot, most of the people talking about this and weighing in very heavily mm -hmm. with their opinions, it's not their children, and they're not particularly well-informed. And it is frustrating that conservatives who really understand the dangers of government overreach in the family life in certain instances throw all of that caution mm -hmm. to the wind when it's something like transition surgery or abortion rights. That said, they did have that, uh, again, we talked about this on Monday, you weren't here, this, this sort of libs of TikTok investigation. And they did get, for this one hospital that's been really uh, targeted by conservatives, you know, they did. They put out a statement saying we never do this on anyone younger than I think it was 17. The Boston Children's Hospital, um, yeah, right? Or maybe this was the National Children's Hospital. Oh, okay. um, and they put out the statement saying, yeah, we never do this on anyone on, uh, old, younger than 17, I think. And lives of TikTok called saying, I have a, I have a 16-year-old, and and she got two people uh, who are telephone operators working at that hospital say, yes, we would really heavily suggesting, yet we would do it for your kid and for kids much younger. Well, Which, do, do what? Because this is a process that, again, takes such a long time that I wouldn't be surprised if most people who get started with the psychological evaluations yeah. and the hormone therapies and all of those kinds of things don't start well before. I, I certainly think that it's possible that that's what was meant, but the way it, it was very definitively stated that and heavily implied that they were talking about the surgery itself. Maybe that's maybe those people were misinformed. Maybe they meant what you were what you are saying. But it is it's genuinely unclear to me from the it's it, it seems yeah. a dispute. And the way the Washington Post uh, framed it was very like no, this is debunked because they put out the statement saying that's not true. I'm like, mm -hmm. well, but she did talk to two people who suggested something totally contradictory to what this no, statement says. Do so some journalism. Do some journalism, people. <laughs> All right, we successfully talked about Antifa drag brunch. That was a, an item on the agenda for the day. Um, we'll have more rising in just a minute. Well, Senators Amy Klobuchar and Rob Portman have wrapped up a visit to Ukraine. Yesterday, they met with President Volodymyr Zelensky and Ukraine's defense minister to discuss the war. Senator Klobuchar tweeted about the meeting, saying, quote, I'm more committed than ever to supporting Ukraine's fight for democracy and sovereignty. The meeting happened on the same day that The Washington Post reported that Ukraine has developed a fleet of wooden decoys resembling U.S. rocket systems to trick Russian forces into wasting long-range cruise missiles. Meanwhile, new reporting alleges that back in April, peace was a very realistic possibility. According to reporting in Foreign Affairs, the tentative agreement called for Russia to withdraw to its February position in exchange for Ukraine promising not to seek NATO membership. Joining us now to weigh in on all of this is Aaron Mate, host of The Pushback on the Gray Zone. Aaron, welcome. Good to be here. 
So I heard uh, you talking about this in the context of an interview you did recently with Katie Hopper on Useful Idiots uh, with Noam Chomsky. And you know, Chomsky very compellingly laid out all of the ways in which uh, the US media machine has been working in overdrive to prevent people from realizing that there was um, uh, an off-ramp to this crisis. Can you talk a little bit about that? We talked about this last time I was on your show uh, in March. There were talks between Ukrainian and Russian negotiators, and they had set uh, plans for a meeting in Turkey to finalize an agreement. But Boris Johnson from the UK uh, came in and basically told Zelensky no and said to him that even if you reach an agreement with Russia uh, based on security guarantees from the West, we will not provide you with those security guarantees, basically making any such agreement meaningless. And Zelensky took the orders and the talks were sabotaged. Now we have, from the American side, confirmation of what was reported in the Ukrainian media. And that comes in the form of Fiona Hill writing in Foreign Affairs that, yes, during that same period, Ukraine and Russia had worked out an agreement uh, where Russia would basically withdraw to its pre-February invasion position, uh, controlling Crimea, and also uh, controlling or at least having close ties with the breakaway regions of the Donbass. And also Ukraine would pledge not to join NATO. That was the outline of a peace agreement that Fiona Hill says was reached between Ukraine and Russia. What she omits was what we talked about last time, which is that Boris Johnson, and Boris Johnson did this coming from the U uh, with US orders, obviously, told Zelensky that the game was off. And so that's why we have still today this war going on. That's so frustrating because, like, what, what is the point? The point of NATO was supposedly to stop conflict between Russia and European neighbors. So if we can avoid this conflict with it, like NATO is not an end to itself in theory. It was supposed to avoid a, a very conflict like this. So it is so frustrating that you know, by by the accounts you just laid out, what sounds like a good, uh, a, a good, in, in fact, as good a peace agreement as Ukraine could ever get, because it can't, you know, un unilaterally win this war, defeat Russia and cl and claim all that territory. That's a great deal. And, uh, and, and you know, what do you make of the short sightedness of, of not just, well, Ukrainian officials, but U.S. officials on on this question of the, of how the war will be resolved? From the start, I've been warning that the U.S. is more committed to hegemony and enriching the military-industrial complex than it is to anything else, including Ukraine's sovereignty and its stability and well-being. And that's been obvious by U.S. policy in Ukraine going back many years. You can start with the coup of 2014, in which the U.S. backed the overthrow of a government. That set off a war that we don't really talk about in the U.S. media, but it's important. For the last eight years, there's been a very deadly conflict inside Ukraine. More than 14,000 people have died. The U.S. has been fueling that with billions of dollars worth of weapons and sabotaging the peace accords, the Minsk peace accords that were reached to end it. And, you know, overall, look, on your point about NATO, it's the same thing. NATO, you could once say, existed to confront the threat of the Soviet Union. Fair enough. That threat dissipated when the Soviet Union collapsed. Yet for some reason, the U.S. has overseen this expansion of NATO since the early 1990s right to Russia's borders. And as the scholar Richard Sakwa says of the University of Kent, NATO exists to manage threats confronted, uh, created by its own existence. Hmm. And that's exactly what NATO has been. It's good for weapons manufacturers. And that's why whenever NATO expands, they spend a lot of money lobbying lawmakers in Washington. It's bad for everybody else.
Yeah, Chomsky made this point on, on on your show as well, that every time the war is referenced, it's referenced as a, an unprovoked conflict, the unprovoked invasion, the unprovoked invasion. And he was very careful to say, you know, of course it isn't, the fact of it being provoked isn't a justification for doing it. But you've never really heard that terminology being deployed before the way it's being used now. Every, every really reference to the invasion characterizes it as an unprovoked invasion, which is kind of a tell. It, it, it points to, you know, subtly actually, tacitly points to the fact that it was a, a provoked invasion and that the rhetoric is doing work over time to try to make people not have that conversation. And the importance of noting that there was a kind of a provocation that you're describing here isn't to say, again, that Russia isn't culpable for making the choice to invade another country, but that there were off-ramps that were available to the West before this that could have been avoided the conflict if that was really the priority as opposed to some of these other priorities that are emerging, like weapons manufacturing and you know U.S. hegemony, et cetera. And, and so I, I wonder what you make of that as you've been trying to report on these issues and receiving a lot of blowback yourself. And also I wonder if you can just give us an update about what's going on on the ground uh, to the best you know, understand it. Well, look, as you say, just because Russia was provoked doesn't mean it was justified. And I can't accept the argument from Russia that they had no other option but to invade Ukraine. Uh, why didn't Vladimir Putin, for example, do what he's doing now, which is reduce energy supplies to the rest of Europe? Or why didn't Putin even give a public speech aimed at the world saying, look, I've been put into a corner. This war has been raging in Ukraine for eight years. The U.S. won't and Ukraine also won't respect the Minsk Accords. Uh, NATO is expanding. The U.S. has also been dismantling nuclear arms control treaties that allow for the placement of offensive weapons threatening Russia. P Putin could have said all this, but he didn't. And uh, so Russia is culpable for its own decision to invade. But that doesn't mean that Russia was not provoked. And as Chomsky says, you will never hear the invasion of Iraq by the U.S. referred to as the unprovoked invasion of mm. Iraq. And so the fact that we have to hear so often that Russia's invasion uh, was supposedly uh, unprovoked just speaks to how uh, desperate people who support this invasion are to cover up the actual factual background. And it's unfortunate that we, we, we've been prevented from learning about the background because the U.S. media won't report it. And look, a major obstacle is that we have no progressives in Congress who traditionally are aligned with being anti-war willing to speak out. Every single Democrat, including the squad, uh, and Bernie Sanders voted to fund the proxy war, voted to uh, support the use of the Lend-Lease Act, which speeds up the transfer of U.S. military equipment uh, to Ukraine, voted to expand NATO recently, and voted mm -hmm. to call on NATO countries to spend at least 2% of their GDP on the military-industrial complex. So the challenges uh, in speaking factually about the war are compounded by even those who traditionally are anti-war are supporting this proxy war, which yeah. makes uh, support discussion very difficult. Hollywood, the celebrity class, journalists, people who are, from my perspective, sometimes annoyingly counted on to uh, to back liberal causes, they're all going for photo ops with Zelensky. They're, they're doing the opposite. They're giving moral credence to the idea that the war can be won with just with more effort and we have to stay the course. That's like that's what you're hearing from people who who would have theoretically could have been counted on perhaps to be more anti-war. Yes. And, you know, Zelensky himself is a sad figure because he was elected in 2019 with a huge mandate. More than 70 percent of the vote voted for him because he was promising to end the war in the Donbass, to make peace with the Russian speaking rebels. What did he do instead? He escalated the war uh, and he refused the opportunities he had to avoid 
this catastrophe. Now, I lay most of the blame in Washington because, as was warned about at the time by the late scholar Stephen F. Cohen, said to me in, in an interview in 2019, just as the uh, Democrats were impeaching Trump for briefly freezing some weapons shipments to Ukraine, Professor Cohen warned to me that unless the U.S. has Zelensky's back and supports his peace mandate, then Ukraine's far right will win, that they will sabotage the only chance they have in Ukraine to make peace with the rebels and avoid catastrophe. And the U.S. chose instead to continue fueling the war with weapons that Trump was impeached for briefly impeding and to side with the far right. And it's led us to where we are today. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. And stick with us for more Rising in just a minute. Another food processing plant fire happened yesterday in Montebello, California. California has experienced its share of devastating processing plant fires. Back in April, a massive fire at Salinas, California broke out in the key agricultural region where tens of thousands were forced to evacuate their homes. Some internet sleuths are doing the heavy lifting for us. So we wanted to point, put this on the map, uh, on the screen from ZMAPS. This shows the alarming rates of fires at manufacturing plants, grocery stores, food pantries, farms, and grain factories. It's likely that over 100 of these fires have taken place just this year. Just this month, the Graincraft flour mill in Pendleton, Oregon, was completely destroyed, and even tens of thousands of chickens were killed in a May fire in Minnesota. So let's take another look at the map. Let's look at the manufacturing fires alone. The black markers show that this is happening across the country, especially in California and in the Midwest East Coast. Uh, now let's see the grain map. Uh, Oregon, Washington, and Pacific Northwest appear to have taken a hit as well as the Midwest. And as far as farm fires go, let's look at these green markers appearing in droves from Minnesota to Wisconsin, Michigan, and all down the East Coast. Now, there has been a lot of conspiratorial discussion online mm -hmm. about these. People um, from Tucker Carlson to Charlie Kirk have been asking whether this is an intentional threat on our food system and if there's really something to see here. What do you make of it, Robbie? Mm. Uh, actually, let's play that uh, a bit of uh, uh, Tucker's show. Um, this guest, uh, uh, Jason Rance, talking about it on Tucker Carlson. Let's play that. Good to see you. Yeah, obviously, when something happens every so often, you obviously hope that there's no significant damage and certainly no one gets hurt, but you kind of write it off. It's not that big of a deal. Accidents happen. But when you've got well over a dozen food processing plants and warehouses getting destroyed or seriously damaged over just the last few weeks at a time when the food supply is already vulnerable. It's obviously suspicious and it could lead to serious food shortages. That's why some folks are now wondering, well, number one, what's going on? And you've got some people speculating that this might be an intentional way to disrupt the food supply. Wait, so may I ask you to pause there really quick? Plant? Can I just ask you, I just want to nail this down so our, our viewers understand. There have been confirmed over a dozen disabling accidents at food plants in the last month, over a dozen. Absolutely. So I'm looking at this, uh, some reporting from the Manhattan Institute, which is a conservative think tank uh, that, that does some good, some journalism that I think is interesting. And they're saying that this is not outside the statistical, there's nothing statistically amiss here. Mm -hmm. This is within the normal number of fires that occur. Mm -hmm. and, um, and and National Review, which is also conservative, has mm -hmm. done some reporting on this, suggesting that they're not being labeled as arson. So it, if it's if it's uh, if it's nefarious, if it's like deliberate, someone's trying to sabotage this, the food supply. 
they're doing a very it's very subtle it's too right. looks too subtle to be yeah. uh, to be deliberate one was I think an airplane crash into a facility there are all different kinds of things there was also a fact check on Reuters um, titled fact check Food processing plant fires in 2022 are not part of a conspiracy to trigger U.S. food shortages. All right, on the plane crash specifically, yeah, a Georgia General Mills plant. If pilots, this is City Journal, if pilots were making kamikaze attacks on food plants, would be very frightening. News that a student pilot and his instructor actually crashed 300 yards from the food facility. That's sad, but hardly ominous. Like, there's no way that would be what a. a yeah. I mean, that, that actually starts to sound like. Like Russian disinformation, like Russian plotting plan. Well, <laughs> oh, the Russians paid them to crash the thing near the, the like that's what a, like an unhinged well, that's, liberal that's the world would say. We live in, and, and yeah. I'm curious. Like I, I am seeing this on my feed. Obviously, you're seeing it. A lot. I've high, never seen any of this today. High-profile people like Tucker Carlson are doing segments on it on their show. Is this part of a kind of greater campaign to divide up working Americans to make mm. them turn on each other, other to make them fear food shortages? Now that's the angry. conspiracy. I mean, like that, I mean, that's not a conspiracy. That's just the way the world. I understand why people are not at all satisfied by annoying fact checks from PolitiFact and Snopes and Reuters because they so get things often. all the time. Yeah, you, you know this is not um, and, and right. They lead with they're for so the, for this Reuters fact check, they put up a Charlie Kirk tweet: Food processing plants don't just accidentally burn down at this rate. They certainly don't coincidentally become landing pads for plane crashes at this rate. Our food supply is under attack. So that is. Easily debunked because you can just look at how many fires and accidental fires, electrical fires there are in in the food sector, and and as Reuters then does and says, so yes, they do accidentally catch fire mm -hmm. like all the time. Things accidentally catch mm -hmm. fire, mm -hmm. and um, there are a lot more food processing plants than you might imagine right. in the United States. Yeah, so and like small small planes crash, it ha it does happen. So so asserting that th there. Must be something nefarious going on because because of these it is obviously wrong and easy to fact check. So they go the fact checkers always you know find the most like extreme right wing person to debunk, and then you know. Well, I'm I'm sure if Bernie Sanders was. Uh, hand wringing about the threat to our food supply that these fires <laughs> present, then they would have used his tweet as well. Oh, you think so? But like I, I am seeing, I don't know, maybe it's it's not necessarily representative, but it does seem like this is a discourse that's been concentrated at least a little disproportionately in conservative media, and it is interesting to watch and to track because I do think it speaks to the idea that people do feel very vulnerable. There are real threats to our food system that are being caused right. by the war in Ukraine. Right, but it's not malfeasance. That's policy. That's the government. Policy. policy. I mean, you want to put it the conspiracy to make us all hungry and poor. Look to our government and its policies. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the problem with a lot of this misinformation, including the stuff that Russia has been accused of spreading, is that it is very close to the truth, if not true. Russia promoting Facebook posts about how America treats its black citizens poorly is not so much misinformation as true information as that's information. being wielded for their own political benefit. And the best way I would argue to solve that is to get at the root of the underlying problem and stop making that fact true. And so to the extent that we are experiencing this uh, potential, these, these uh, food supply threats because of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, I have some solutions for yeah. how they can yeah. stop let's that. End, let's de-escalate that war. Yeah. And uh, then we could... Uh we could fix some of those problems. Yeah. It would be great if our government focused on that. But Amy Klobuchar and uh, who, who was the Republican Senator Rob Portman were doing a photo ops with Zelensky. So right. the war will continue uh, because there's 
absolutely no, no, pressure. Uh, no political pressure. In fact, there's bipartisan consensus on the idea that it, it should continue. Just no, no one speaking out against it except for like a handful of, of supposedly fringe Republicans or Republicans who are described as fringe on other issues. Only ones speaking up against it. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. Tomorrow on Rising, Max Alvarez and Amy Tarkanian will join us to discuss various topics. And you should be sure to like, share, and subscribe to Rising so that you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So do tune in. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow.